You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon in and of itself. You know, every world religion has at its core the doctrine of prayer. It's not an exclusive idea specifically to Christianity. Prayer is a core tenet of every world religion, and as such, the majority of the world's 7 billion inhabitants pray. It's interesting. But all religions have some type of ritual that accompanies prayer. For Christians, what do we do? We often bow our heads and we fold our hands. We're teaching Thea, who's our soon-to-be 18-month-old, to pray. And the first step to that process is to, to put your hands together and bow your head. He still hadn't gotten the closing of the eyes, but there's a ritual to it. It's kind of how we teach Uh, Christians to pray. Catholics have their own traditions, don't they? Often in prayer, they'll light candles and they'll hold rosary beads. Native Americans perform ritual dances. Hindus chant mantras, incorporate yoga. Jews, if you've ever seen video of the Wailing Wall, uh, they pray, but they sway back and forth as they do so. Buddhists seclude themselves for the purposes of, of uninterrupted meditation. Muslims practice what's called salat, which is kneeling, prostrate, for the purposes of praying five times a day to Mecca. You know, Quakers, Quakers pray very similar to Christians, but it is kind of a a fundamental idea to their prayer that it has to be in silence. You'll never find Quakers praying out loud, which makes corporate prayer with Quakers kind of weird. Do you really know if they're praying? Or are they just kind of taking a time out? I don't know. While most everyone engages in some type of prayer life, have you ever noticed that most people actually really struggle to define what it is they're doing when they pray? Or for that matter, who they're praying to? Or what their prayer is even seeking to accomplish. There is a lot of mystery and misunderstanding when it comes to prayer. If I asked you to define prayer, the answers would be varying. Wikipedia defines prayer as this. Quote, communication directed towards a deity, spirit, deceased person, or lofty idea for the purpose of worshiping, requesting guidance, requesting assistance, confessing sins, or to express one's thoughts and emotions. I hope that cleared things up, right? I mean, they just kind of buckshotted that answer. Like, we're going to hit something one way or the other. But even the more simplistic definitions of prayer yield confusion. Merriam-Webster defines prayer as, quote, a petition to God. Google defines prayer as, quote, an earnest hope or wish. The Oxford Dictionary defines prayer as simply a solemn request for help. And while it's true that the scriptures encourages people to bring their request to God, I hope you know that the act of relegating prayer to being nothing more than just the mechanism by which a person petitions God has tragically yielded an unintended unintended consequence. Simply seeing prayer as the way you make a petition to God yields more skepticism in God than I think it yields faith. Let me give you two examples of how this common misconception concerning prayer has produced confusion and skepticism within our society. Comedian George Carlin, who is um, a very foul, blasphemous type of individual, but he did make a very interesting observation And one of these kind of foul-mouthed stand-up routines. He said this. He said, suppose your prayers aren't answered. What do you say? Well, it's God's will. Thy will be done. Fine. But if it's God's will, and he's going to do what he wants anyway, why bother praying in the first place? Seems like a big waste of time to me. 
couldn't you just skip the praying part and go right to his will? It's all very confusing. And I tend to kind of agree with him. In his book, Mortality, atheist Christopher Hitchens, he points out the silliness of human beings petitioning a divine God through the mechanism of prayer. He's, his intention is to mock, but I think he does hit on a thread of truth. He writes, the man who prays is the one who thinks that God has arranged matters all wrong, but who also thinks that he can instruct God how to put them right. I think the confusion that people have concerning prayer can be summed up with a very simple, logical theorem. First, since prayer is often seen as the mechanism by which I make requests to God, that's the common definition of prayer. But secondly, God doesn't always answer these requests. Logically, I can conclude one of the following three things. A, God doesn't exist, and thus prayer is worthless. That's the Christopher Hitchens mantra. Two, God exists, but he just doesn't give a rip. He doesn't care. And thus, prayer is pointless. That's George Carlin's take. Or thirdly, prayer is actually more than making requests. And thus, maybe we should rethink the way that we pray. In Acts chapter 4, in the first 22 or so verses, we see the fallout of a very interesting event. Just to kind of give you the big picture here, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's commissioned 120 followers to go to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that in more detail next Sunday. But they're obedient to the requests of Jesus. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's poured out. Peter stands up, gives this sermon in the public square. We're told 3,000 people give their life to Jesus. The church is birthed in this incredible, awesome, powerful moment. Well, as they're continuing ministry, they're in Jerusalem. We're told that, that Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer. And they go, no doubt, to pray. But on their way, they see this man who's begging, who's asking for alms. And if you recall the story, the, the latter parts of chapter 3, Peter, in a bold moment, he sees the man. He's prompted by the Spirit. He says, silver and gold I don't have. The Pope was broke at that point. But in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And it was, it was, it was a dramatic moment. Because Peter had never done anything like that. If he fell flat on his face, the guy didn't get up. The whole movement could have ended right there. And yet, what happens? Immediately the man jumps up. We're told he clings to Peter and John as they go into the temple. And then Peter gives this incredible sermon, his second sermon recorded in Acts, to kind of explain what was happening. He presents the gospel. We're told as a result, another 5,000 are added to the church. Now, it could be that 5,000 new converts existed or another two was added to the three. Either way, two sermons, that's quite a harvest. Well, that movement is not met, is, is not, is not met without some form of opposition. And we're told that as Peter's preaching this sermon, that the, the temple guards come in, arrest both Peter and John. They're taken before the Sanhedrin. They're beaten, they're whipped. It's a whole thing. They're commanded to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And in another stroke of boldness, before the same group of men who some 50 days beforehand had sent, sentenced Jesus to be executed, Peter's like, if you're asking us to do that, I decline. Because I will proclaim him even more boldly. And these men are like, what are we going to do? So they beat him, they send him on their way. Well, all this is happening, okay? There's a group of Christians that are together praying. Their hearts are heavy. Peter and John come to them, they report. We get to verse 23, and this is where we pick up our story. Because we're told, in being let go, Peter and John, they went to their own companions. They reported all that the chief priests, the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And they said, now, now pause for just a minute, what we have here is the first prayer recorded 
here in the book of Acts. We're given a glimpse into how these disciples took Jesus's model of prayer, right? Jesus's prayer, the disciples' prayer, our Father who art in heaven, and now how they take that template and are applying it to their own situation. Let's look at it. They pray, Lord, your God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and is all that it, that is in them. Look at their motivation behind their prayer. When they heard that, from the context, our author Luke is letting us know that the main motivator for this group of people collectively raising their voices to God with one accord was this report just given to them by Peter and John of all that the chief priests had said to them. Catch that for a moment. The chief priests had not given them good things. He had not given them encouraging words. It had been threat after threat after threat saying to them that they were no longer allowed to preach in the name of Jesus or they would face certain punishment. That was the motivation behind now this spirit-led prayer meeting. These men and women are like, well, what are we going to do? Do we shut up? Do we pull it back? What's the next step? And what do they do instead of their own ingenuity and their own ideas, they come before the Lord with heavy hearts. This group of believers, they might have been young in their faith, but they were not stupid. They knew whatever autonomy they might have previously enjoyed had been lost because the hornet's nest had been stirred. They had just pitted themselves against some of the most powerful and politically connected men in all of Israel. Though they had been commanded not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus, Peter and John had refused, boldly stating that they, quote, could not but speak the things that they had heard and seen. Opposition they knew at this point moving forward, extreme opposition would be unavoidable. And so what do they do in this moment? They see the storm clouds ahead. They know the storm's brewing. They know it's coming. They'd been in storms before. And what do they do? They collectively get on their knees and they pray. Now, before we look at the substance of their prayer, I think it's important we first establish a complete biblical picture as to what the scriptures say concerning prayer. As mentioned, there's a lot of confusion about prayer. First, prayer is the mechanism by which human beings communicate to God. Prayer is the way that you communicate with your heavenly Father. According to the scriptures, in addition to being the apparatus by which we do make our requests known to God, and I, I, for full disclosure, it is the way we can make requests. Philippians 4, 6 makes that clear. But we also see from Scripture that it's also the way that a person does other things in communicating to God. According to 1 John 1.9, it's how you confess your sins to the Lord. James 5 verse 15, prayer is how you make intercession for others. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 3, prayer is how we thank God for his provisions, for the roof of our head, the ability to buy food. Hebrews 13, verse 15, lets us know that it's through prayer that we're able to praise God for who he is and what he's done in our lives. See, according to scripture, there are only three requirements essential for effective prayer. One, you must approach God with a pure heart. Psalms 66, verse 18, makes that clear. And how do we have a pure heart? Is it by what we do? No, it's by who we know. You see, our righteousness, our purity, our holiness doesn't come through making penance or sacrifice. It's by coming through Jesus, the essence of what makes us right before God, that we come through Christ, that we have access, according to Hebrews, through Jesus to the throne of grace. Which leads us to the second point, that in addition to a pure heart, we also should approach God through faith in Jesus. John 14, verses 12 through 14 makes that clear. And then thirdly, 
And importantly, you must also pray if you want an effective prayer in accordance with God's will. 1 John 5, verse 14. Now, contrary to Catholic doctrine, it should be pointed out that the Bible only encourages us to pray to God the Father. There is no scriptural justification for us to ever pray to another human being. As Christians, we pray in the name of Jesus because Scripture tells us that it's through His name and His name alone that we have access to the Father. Not through Mary, not through another saint, but only through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. You can pray in another person's name. It doesn't make its way to to God. As we'll see, the church didn't even pray to Jesus. The church prayed to God the Father through the name of Jesus. Because this communication to God is understandably spiritual in nature, the Bible presents no mandated physical posturing or uniform for prayer. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, you're going to find examples of people praying with all different types of postures. There's not some specific way that you're supposed to contort or put it together or kneel or whatever. Like you'll find all kinds, standing. We find people standing, Nehemiah 9.5. We find people praying by kneeling, Ezra 9.5. Some people pray in scripture by sitting down, 1 Chronicles 17. Or bowing, Exodus 34. We even find an example of people praying with hands lifted high, 1 Timothy 2.8. You know, Side note, there is no place in Scripture that we're told that to pray, you have to have your eyes closed. Like, you'll never find that actually mentioned in Scripture, that the only way God really hears your prayers is if your eyes are closed so you can't see anything. I happen to pray a lot when I drive. So it's a really good thing that God will hear my requests with my eyes open and very attentive. So you don't have to close your eyes to pray. It's it's not actually uh, in Scripture. Also also note that in Southern tradition, you know, in order for your prayer to really, you know, make it to the big one up there, right? You got to take your hat off. You know, I mean, listen, that cap on your head, you know what? It just snatches up them prayers. It just, they can't get up there. It just snatches them up. It's kind of like my grandmother Old Southern lady, man, you wore a hat at the dinner table when we prayed. Well, wow, like you got it. But there's no, as a matter of fact, you can make a stronger biblical argument from Scripture that you should be praying with a hat on, not off, if you're a fella. So when you see Andy up here playing piano, leading worship, wearing a hat, and you're like, I just don't know about, find a verse, show me. Because that's actually pretty Jewish and correct and biblical, so we can kind of go with it. Be glad we're not taking a lot of these things to the letter of the law, because then like we're head covering. There's all kinds of weird things that happen as a result. The point is, prayer. First and foremost, it's how you communicate with God. It's how you share your heart with the Father. Secondly, Prayer is important because it's one of the principal ways, in addition to communicating with God, that a believer communes with God, spend time with God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul exhorts believers to, quote, pray without ceasing. It would seem from the, the Apostle Paul's example, as the way we communicate with God, that prayer was not to be a scheduled activity, but instead a continuous lifestyle. Think of prayer more as this, an attitude than an action. It's a mechanism by which we explore and enjoy a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That we're to be in a constant state of prayer, of open communication and fellowship and interaction. Now, that's not to say you can't schedule times for prayer. Pray before bed, pray in the morning. But we've developed these traditions and then lost the reality that prayer, it's supposed to continue on. I pray when I wake up, that's cool. 
Pray the rest of the day. Pray all the time. Jesus' example for prayer was 66 words. None of them big or theological. Pray all day. You're driving. Someone cuts you off. Pray, Lord, save them from me. Pray. Just a constant, open dialogue. Imagine you're a sixth grader with a girlfriend. And you got that phone. And you're talking. And then you're like, I'm really tired. You know, well, why don't we just leave the phone, you know, on the pillow all night? You know, back, back in the day when that like tied up the whole phone line and also the internet, my parents were always really irritated because it was like an open line. Some of you got like get teenagers and your cell phone bill blows up because they do that. It's like, are you kidding me? But a constant dialogue, an open line, there's no need to ever hang it up. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he described prayer as the highest activity of the human soul. You see, prayer as a lifestyle was designed to enable the follower of God to stay in a perpetual state of community with God. Is it any wonder that Jesus spent more time in prayer than any other person in all of Scripture? Now, this might be a good time to explain what prayer isn't. First, I mean no offense, but it's the truth. Prayer is not the mechanism by which God receives, receives status updates on what's happening in your life. It's not the way God stays up with the current events. As if, right, the all-seeing God of the universe needs you to keep him posted on what's going on. A lot of people see prayer as if amen was some kind of cosmic hashtag where the more people we got lifting up a request, the more likely it was that that need would start trending in the Twitter feed of heaven. The more people using that hashtag amen, the more God would take note. It would grab his attention. And yet that's not the case. God is fully aware of what's happening. He doesn't need you to let him know. Also, by the way, when we fall into that trap, you know what prayer ends up becoming? When it becomes our way of letting God know what's going on, it also becomes our way of gossiping about others with God, which is a terrible person to be gossiping with, who's made it clear that he's not a fan of gossip. So often, we spend our time in prayer talking about other people's stuff when we don't need to. God's fully aware. We can intercede, but we don't have to gossip with God. The second thing that you should note about what prayer isn't is that prayer is not a mechanism by which you seek to influence God's plan for your life. Once again, as if the all-wise God of the universe who, quote, knew you before the foundations of the world, doesn't have a clue what's best for your life. Sadly, for many people, prayer, prayer is nothing more than a very well-crafted business proposal designed to convince God he should be buying into your plan. C.S. Lewis made this powerful observation. He wrote, And Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners speaking of Jesus, prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him, it did not. It's not how we influence God's will. That's not the purpose of prayer. Friends, as Jesus himself exhorted and practiced, prayer, prayer should focus on what? On seeing God's will done on earth and not my will accomplished in heaven. That's the aim of prayer, to align my heart with his, not to get him to do what I want. Mother Teresa, she said, prayer is not asking. Prayer is instead putting oneself in the hands of God at his disposition to listen to his voice in the depths of our hearts. I couldn't agree more.
If you pray to a God that you have kind of morphed into being nothing more than a genie, whose job it is to make whatever your wish happens to become true, if that's your view of God, that it's about him doing what you want, not your heart being aligned to his, understand, if that's your concept of prayer, you are in for a crisis of faith. And here's why. That God doesn't exist. The God of the Bible is not a genie you can rub the right way. Yeah, that was a Christina Aguilera reference. I'm sorry. I couldn't, couldn't help myself. And that's really an old song at this point. But anyway, he's not a genie that you're given wishes. He is the sovereign God who, by the way, serves at the will of no other. If you're looking for God to do what you want, well, that God doesn't exist. And not only that, but that's, that's not even how the Bible rolls. Please realize, God is more interested in providing you the things you really need as opposed to giving you the things you really want. Let me say that again, it's important. God is more interested in providing you the things you really need as opposed to giving you the things you really want. The sad irony of it all is that small, finite people that's you and I, sometimes believe when we pray, at least we communicate it, that we happen to know what's better for me than the God of the universe does. You know, looking back over my 33 years, I've made some requests to God. I got angry he didn't answer. I was convinced in the time this was the best thing for my life. And yet today, in retrospect, I find myself more grateful for the request he didn't grant than the ones he did. That said, if you do see prayer as communication to God and communion with God, a way that you can align your heart with God's, your will with his, your desires with his, your plans to his, if that's your view of prayer, then your prayer life well, you're in for the most radical experience you could ever imagine. R.C. Sproul, he said, prayer does change things, all kinds of things, but the most important thing it changes is us. As we engage in this communion with God more deeply and come to know the one with whom we are speaking more intimately, that growing knowledge of God reveals to us all the more brilliantly who we are and our need to change in conformity to him. Prayer changes us profoundly. Soren Kierengaard, he correctly stated, quote, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. Not to mention, this doesn't even begin to factor the purifying effects a lifestyle of prayer has on the life of a believer. The more time you spend communicating with God in communion with God, the more God begins to rub off on you. John Bunyan, he aptly stated, prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. Now, with all this in mind, let's get back to our text. Look at how their prayer began. They say, Lord, your God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. There's a lot there. Let's dive into it. The word we translate often in the New Testament as Lord, L-O-R-D, is actually two similar Greek masculine nouns that both mean master, but in two radically different ways. The majority of the time, the word we read in the New Testament as Lord, it's actually, if you do a word study, the Greek noun kiros. The title was common in the Greek language, and it referenced the way that a wife or child would refer to a husband or father. Kiros. The, the, the word that's used most often for God and for Jesus was a title of honor, 
an endearment. Because while acknowledging God's authority, that word kiros, praying to Lord, it emphasized the benevolence he showed towards those who were under his authority, under his umbrella, under his responsibility. And yet, in this instance, we find this word Lord, when they pray Lord, it's a different Greek noun altogether. It's the word despotes, which, mind you, was used less frequently in the Greek because it referenced the way in which a slave would refer to his master. Despotes is only used six times in the New Testament. It's always used to describe God the Father. It's never used, mind you, to describe Jesus. This word despotes was a title of reference because it not only recognized the very nature of God's role as master, in the sense that there were no intrinsic limitations or restraints in how he could choose to exercise his power or authority specifically to those who were under his guardianship. Kiros is endearment. Despotes is reverence. It recognizes the raw power God has over you. One Greek scholar commented that despotes did not did no doubt express on the lips of the faithful who used it their sense of God's absolute disposal over his creatures, of his autocratic power more strongly than Kiros would have done. Using the title despotes implied a more entire prostration of self before the might and majesty of God than Kiros would have done. Though it's significant, this is how they begin their prayer. No, they continue by proclaiming, right? Lord, despotes, master, you are God. It acknowledged here that their despotes was theos, or the true one God. They continue, right? By adding more definition to this God. Who made the heavens, earth, the sea, and all that is in them? This is how they literally open their prayer. We recognize the majestic power you, as our dictator and God, have over us. For it was by the same power that you created the sky and the earth and the sea and all of the animals that live in them. Powerful opening, isn't it? It's interesting that their prayer affirms one of the most basic, fundamental biblical truths concerning God. As we've noted recently, in the beginning, God created. And note this. Here, this group of men and women, they were reminding themselves of this truth. Why? Because they had forgotten it? No but that in proportion to this mounting opposition, this storm that was circling, they needed to remember in that moment how big and powerful the God they served really was. This is why Jesus instructed us to begin our prayers, right? How? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Even Jesus modeled this when he prayed. In Matthew eleven twenty five, we read that Jesus in praying started, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even Jesus reminded himself that God was the creator. You see, reminding myself who God really is, my despotes, my creator, my dictator, it helps me contextualize what God actually does. And in turn, these two realities help me place whatever present situations, circumstances, concerns, requests, fears into a proper perspective. I'm a child of God. Though I might not see any solution to my pressing problem, I need to remind myself that I have a powerful creator on my side 
who while the solution might not exist, is really good at speaking things into existence that never were. Though I might be presently facing the fiercest of storms, I should remind myself that I have the powerful creator on my side who by this same word not just holds the world together, but has the power to tell the storm to shut up and cease to be calm. Though I might not know what the future holds or tomorrow, I do have the powerful creator on my side who transcends time and space and knows my end from my beginning and my beginning from my end. I come to God and I pray, I commune and I communicate, but I start by reminding myself who God is, who I'm praying to. For whatever I might be facing, how powerful, how daunting, how frustrating, whatever that is, it's no match for the God on my side. Look at how they continue, verse 25. Who, by the mouth of your servant David, have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Notice the progression of their prayer. They go first from reminding themselves who God is to doing what? They're now focusing their attention on what God has said who God is, and then their prayer focuses on the promises God has made. This phrase that we find here, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, can literally be translated, quote, using the mouth of your servant David, you have said. And then they quote directly from Psalms 2, verses 1 through 2. I believe that these believers in this moment were taking great solace in this passage, because this Psalms 2 passage clearly affirms that the opposition to Jesus and now the opposition they were facing here in their present time was something that God had long predicted. It wasn't something catching him off guard, which meant that the persecution they were facing was an indicator Not that things were spiraling out of God's control, but that things were instead working according to his perfect plan. You know, if you read the rest of Psalms 2, I think you'll notice another reason why they were encouraged, why they happened to refer back to this passage. The rest of the chapter directly speaks of the judgment of God. Note, the judgment of God that would rain down on those who would persecute Jesus and those who followed him. Let me just give you a little taste. Psalms 2, verses 4 and 5. He who sits in the heavens, this is what they're referencing, shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them, those persecuting God's followers, in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. They might be persecuting the church, But the church is reminding themselves how it all shapes up. I find it interesting that in quoting from Psalms 2, these early Christians translate the Hebrew word Lord, L-O-R-D, which was Yahweh, the unspoken name of God. But in quoting this passage, notice they translate it into the Greek word, not despotes, which they just used, but now they translate it into kiros. They take Yahweh to Kiros, though they've already communicated a healthy reverence and respect for God. What are they doing now? You created the world. You've got, you're powerful. You've got all these things in control. You're my despotes, my dictator. You're on my side. And now when they begin to focus on what God says, they focus on the Kiros aspect. Healthy reverence, healthy respect, But now they're beginning to see God also as tender, as loving, as merciful. They understood that as his children, this God was approachable and knowable. You know, prayer should always have a balance of these two things. Reverence as well as relationship. Approachability with reverence. You know, 
Sometimes I think our prayers end up being a little too cavalier. We need to approach God, but we also should respect who it is that we're approaching. Let's continue. Verse 27, For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Wow! Just process that for a moment. As they focus on who God is and what God said, and then what happened. Two realities come to the forefront. They come into focus. One, if Jesus was persecuted, why should they expect anything different to happen to them? And secondly, if everything that had taken place with Jesus was under God's control, then why should they now see their affairs any differently? What they're saying is they're saying, your holy servant Jesus anointed by you, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, they all conspired. They nailed him to a tree, but we recognize what? This was all part of your plan. And if it was your plan for Jesus, and we're now facing difficulty, we also recognize that it's your plan for us. If it's your plan for Jesus, whom you anointed, whom you love, then I can't see the things I'm facing as an indicator you don't love me, but that you have a plan and a purpose. Continue, now, Lord, verse 29, look on their threats, the threats made by, by the high priest, the chief priests. They continue, and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word, by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Check out how their prayer works here. After taking time to consider who God was and what God had said, now they're able to look at the big picture and place their circumstance, right, and their situation into context, which means that when they finally get to their petition, Look at what they ask God. They say, grant to your servants boldness that we may speak your word. They knew what God's will was. And now they're asking for the strength. You see, because they prayed correctly and in the process of doing so, were able to align their hearts to the Father's. When they finally got around to their petition, these early believers didn't ask that God would grant them escape from the coming storm, this opposition. Instead, they just asked God that he would give them strength. Strength to do what? To stand in boldness, no matter what would happen and face this op opposition. Instead of asking God, as many of us do, to remove the storm brewing on the horizon, this story, their example, should encourage you to pray that God might instead grant you the strength to endure if it's his will. And then look, we're told that when they prayed, verse 31, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Wow. As we're told in James 5, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man falls flat? No. Avails much. Coming to God in prayer, in the manner that, that, that Jesus had instructed, in the way that these disciples exemplify, it had been successful. In tuning their hearts to the will of God to the point they know what to ask for, they ask for boldness. And what does God do? He gives them what they asked for. Why? Because they were asking for the right thing. And how were they asking for the right thing? Because they knew what God's will was. And God granted their request. We're told, we need boldness so we can speak. We're not going to cower in fear. You predicted this. It would happen. They persecuted Jesus. We expect it. We're good with that. You're in control, Father. So now we need help. 
to be bold. Because this opposition would incline us to step back maybe in fear. But we don't want to do that. So grant us boldness so we can speak. And what happens? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. And it was in this fresh filling that they now had the strength to do what? To stand boldly and speak boldly the Word of God. Powerful example, isn't it? So, here you are this morning, and you might be in a situation where you feel as though your prayers aren't being answered, haven't been answered. It's not an uncommon reality or experience. Some in the moment might say that, well, you know, that's proof that God doesn't exist. That you're just talking to the air. Some people will say that because your requests aren't being answered, that it's, it's evidence that God doesn't give a rip about you. He's busy with other things. But it could be that the requests that are dominating your prayers, your Father in heaven who's hearing them isn't answering. Well, because you're not asking for the right thing. If you want to see your prayers, as we're told in Scripture, avail much, may I encourage you to rethink why it is you're praying in the first place. God wants to be your heavenly Father. So you can communicate with Him and commune with Him, but He doesn't want to be your heavenly genie. His desire is to have His children more interested in a relationship with Him than what they might be able to get out of him. Don't you love it when your kids just take that moment, crawl up into your lap, and just talk to you? Versus 99% of the time when they crawl up into your lap and they want something from you? I mean, you love them. You hear it. But I mean, how many fruit snacks can one child possibly eat and like a 30-minute period. It's like, if you just came up and you just loved on me for a moment, right? And that's us, a fallen state. I think sometimes it's, it's just annoying for God that every time he picks up the phone, you go on a tangent about all the things he's doing wrong and all the things he needs to be taken care of. It's like your God and he's the servant, as opposed to just spending time with him. That doesn't mean you can't make your request known, but not at the expense of just spending time with God. Prayer is not the way that you just assimilate information. It's how you spend time with your Father. It is the highest activity of the human soul. It's the way that you can communicate and align yourself and connect with God. It's the way that you can surrender your will with His. The way that you can gain a heavenly perspective on an earthly set of circumstances. That we come to prayer so that God's will can be done on earth, not mine in heaven. Which is why we should rethink the way in which we pray. Do you spend more time in prayer worshiping God for who he is, contemplating who he is, the majesty and the power of the God you serve? Do you spend your time contemplating on his word and his promises, his truth? Please understand, when you allow this communion with God to help set your present situations into a heavenly context, it is then and only then that you will actually know what you should be asking for and the way in which God can work, mind you, in a way you've never seen before. They were facing opposition. They could have prayed like many of us, God, get me out of this. This is terrible. What in the world? What did we do to deserve it? intervened. But instead, they focused on God, what he said, his promises that helped them focus on, okay, this is your will. 
So now give us the strength. I need your spirit. I can't face this alone. My kids are out of control. I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do. Lord, help me. So often we would want to pray for a pre-rapture on those two little brats, but we're like, Lord, you've called me with a heavenly calling. You've placed them into my life. I'm their parent. Give me wisdom. Give me strength. God, I'm facing a tough situation at work. I might be inclined to pray that you would take vindictive wrath down onto my boss. But you know, why am I here, Lord? All things work together for the good. You've called me. I'm your servant. You're my king. You've placed me in this, this job. Not to be angry, not to be bitter, not to hate. But you've called me to be here, oh yeah, to be a light, to be a witness. And I know that when things are, are bad and tough, well, I should shine the brightest. So, okay, Lord, I need your spirit because I need to go into work tomorrow and represent you when I don't want to. Our prayers are so off. Matthew 7, we close with this. Jesus said, promised, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? God has promised here to give you what you need. Are you praying for that? Or if you allowed things to convolute that, so you've been praying for what you want, and God's sitting back like, just pray. I, I want to give you what you need, but you just got to get there. Come on. Lord, I need your spirit. Boom. Here you go. That he'll withhold nothing. So, Father, with that, we want to take... Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Zach Adams. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Zach's teaching ministry by visiting zachadams.org.